This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. As usual, you can catch us on the airwaves on 99.1 FM in Portland on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I'm speaking with Jennifer Wagley and Chris Coughlin from Our Children, Oregon. Jennifer is the executive director and Chris is the policy advocacy and engagement director. Both have extensive experience working on advocacy and policy in the nonprofit sector on issues relevant to children and families. We're going to get into that and talk about some of those things today and take a look at the data picture, um, what's happening for children and families in Oregon and across the country. Jennifer and Chris, great to have you here today. Jennifer, I thought maybe you could start. Could you provide an overview of Our Children Oregon and the role of your organization in advocating for children in the state? Yeah, thank you. Well, Our Children Oregon is the only whole child children's advocacy organization in the state of Oregon. And what that means is that we are intersectional and that we bring together well over 100 partner organizations throughout the state to develop a shared agenda for all of the children in Oregon. And then we, we put that together in the children's agenda and advocate for that so that children and youth across the state have representatives in us and in the capital. Can you say a little bit more about your whole child philosophy and how that shapes your work? Yeah, a lot of organizations focus on particular concerns and opportunities that children need. And for us, the approach is really to be intersectional. Children don't live in sectors. And when I'm talking to, you know, regular people, it's like, you know, you don't live in the education sector. You don't live in the healthcare sector. I mean, it takes a lot of things for a child to thrive. Whole child is really just representing that it takes everybody leaning in together, all sectors to have healthy, thriving children. And so our work is to, to bring those, those organizations and the communities together so that we have a comprehensive whole look at what it takes for children and youth to reach their full potential. Can you say a little bit about that? Maybe, Chris, if you want to chime in, too, about how you manage that in terms of developing a policy agenda with so many organizations at the table and so many issue areas for you. How do you make that? How do you make that happen? <laughs> oh, it's a lot of work and our partnerships are really important. So we have a, a steering committee of nine members who are those subject matter experts in those different areas, whether it be housing or early childhood or broader education, economic well-being, healthcare, and others, so that we have people at the table in the steering committee helping look through the different policies that are potentially moving forward and really thinking through what's going to make the biggest, have the biggest impact on children's lives. And how do we also think a lot about what needs an extra boost? Because there are a lot of good ideas out there and there are a lot of ways that money can be spent. But we really want to think about targeted universalism of thinking about which policies and investments can make the biggest impact for those children and families who are farthest from the universal finish line. And that's something that we always keep in mind. And so we look at data, we think about what are those targeted investments that can be made. And then we look to our partners for both what they're working on, what are best practices from other parts of the country. And obviously, the political landscape is also a consideration as we're moving things forward. Thanks for that. One of the projects that you work on is the Kids Count Data Book, and this takes a look at state trends in child well-being. So can you talk about what child well-being is and what the data is capturing in this particular 
report. Yeah, for sure. Well, child well-being is really that children have the opportunity to to live into their full potential with both self-determination, no matter where they're born, no matter what race or ethnicity they are. We want children to have the ability to live free from systemic oppression. And it really means that kids have stable housing so that they're not changing schools all the time, that they can have full bellies and nutritional food and maybe even learn how to garden so that they're connected to those food sources. Quality education. I mean, child well-being is everything from those basic needs, but also just kind of the opportunity for them to have an experience of happiness, belonging, and also safety. So a lot of things go into child well-being, but that's what it takes for humans to be able to thrive. Yeah. This data in particular has been collected for a long time, 32 years. So a long time running. What can you say about what has been learned over time? You know, I, um, I have looked at the trends and right now Oregon sits right in the middle of overall child well-being. We are in the middle of the pack at 25 out of the 50 states. And as you look back through the years, we had a year where we were actually 15. That was in uh, 2006. But as an organization, our goal is that we get back there and we get back there quickly because we believe that Oregon has both the political will and the value set to really invest in children and to make us a leader in the nation when it comes to child well-being. But I'm going to defer to Chris because she's been in the state much longer than I have about some of the things that <laughs> kind of have impacted the trend and maybe both boosted it and also some barriers to us actually living into that dream of leading the nation. Yeah, let's talk about the Oregon data a little bit. Chris, what are you seeing? What are some of the highlights, any good things that you're seeing in the data, and what are the challenge areas for the state? Right. There's the historic and then where we are right now. One of the key data points that we look at are the young children, those ages three and four, who are not in school. That's a key data point that we do look at. And more than half of three and four-year-olds do not have the opportunity to experience preschool in the most recent data. And so that's something that we know it just makes such a huge difference in those early years to have quality early learning experiences. And so that is something that we're doing better than we have been, but we still have a very, very long way to go. That is one piece that we look at. That's children from all households, not necessarily just low-income households. Is that correct? That is correct. So that is across the board. There is a differential um, and there is disparity. So those children who come from higher-income households have more opportunity to attend early learning programs than those in lower income households. And then we have taken some steps here in Oregon in a couple of different ways. The Student Success Act, which passed in 2019, really focuses in on closing disparities on the full range of educational opportunities, early learning through K-12. That is a really exciting and will hopefully be a game changer to close that gap between lower income and upper income families. And then, of course, there's the Multnomah County Preschool for All, which creates a whole different dynamic in terms of universal access to preschool for families in the county. Exactly. And that really is seen nationally as a new best practice, right? Of like when that passed in Multnomah County, it was every national call that, you know, we're connected with different <laughs> early learning networks was like, wow, you know, like how do we all 
get there. So I have heard that there are conversations in other parts of Oregon about looking at that model potentially and seeing what might be possible in other communities. But in the meantime, our focus is really on looking at the Student Success Act. You know, we're really excited that in the budget that is moving through the Oregon legislature right now, that there is a $75 million increase in early learning programs. And that's anticipated to create spots for 3,900 additional children. And that is focused on lower income children. There's also some of the data points at reading proficiency for kids by fourth grade. What does that look like? Because the trend is... I think it's close to the national average, but it doesn't look great in terms of reading proficiency for young children. It doesn't, and that's a a real concern. And so two-thirds of Oregon fourth graders are not proficient in reading, and that does match the national average. And I think that a couple things are going on. You know, in a lot of the national conversations, there's a lot of talk about equitable school funding. And for better or worse, Oregon passed Measure 5 a long time ago um, that equalized our school funding formula across the state. So while Oregon, and I think this goes back to, you know, you asked earlier about some of the historic trends, that when our ranking was higher nationally, our education ranking was higher. And right now we're 40th in the country in education. And from my perspective, you know, we did in moving towards equitable school funding so that there is a somewhat complicated funding formula through our state school fund. Property taxes are not the primary way that schools are funded. Our state general fund and now the corporate activity tax through the student success fund is going to be a significant source of funding for schools. And in many parts of the country, your school system funding is completely based on the property base, tax base in the community. So wealthier communities have much better funded schools. And so that's where a lot of the national conversation is. I think our conversation is really different. Funding is not the only thing that makes a difference for schools and that we still see a lot of disparities around students of color, low-income students, children in foster care, And so when we look at reading rates, when we look at graduation rates, we have those disparities. And so we're really in a place where now with the Student Success Act, that's really looking at changing those outcomes where we need to dive deep. And I know that Jennifer's been having a lot of conversations about literacy specifically and how that impacts um, different communities. Mm -hmm. So I pass it back to her. Yeah, I mean, when I saw these numbers, it was just appalling that so few kids are actually reading on level. And we know about the school to prison pipeline. And then you think about kind of the the national um, kind of milieu of the culture and how and how divisive it is and how fundamental reading is to us as a nation to be able to have a thriving democracy. And so I kind of got curious and I was like, what is the barrier for Oregon really being able to move ahead in, in educational outcomes? I mean, 40th out of 50 states is not anything to be proud of. And Chris is right. We're making some of the right investments, but there are still things that beg questions. Why? And so I've connected to an organization and and, am learning more about the science of reading and about some of the challenges of, of really teaching kids how to read, because there's a lot of research now that supports that every child or 98% of children can be taught to read, but teachers have to be taught how to teach 
kids how to read. So part of the work that we're trying to figure out is how do we get our higher education institutions in this state to lean in, to think differently about the way that literacy education is delivered to teachers so that all of our children, no matter their race or where they come from or their economic background, have an opportunity to read and discern what is a really complicated world we live in. Talking about the world that we live in, I know that the data is speaking to, on some level, the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on children and families. What does the data say about the impact of COVID? And what kind of disparities are we still seeing today by race or by other factors? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the biggest takeaway is that, and people have said it before, so I'm just going to reiterate it, is that we've all been in the same storm but we've all had different boats weathering that storm. And so when we look at the data that's coming out, and this is like real-time data. So like we have, it's called pulse survey data that's coming out about like capturing moments of time of how families and children are faring through the pandemic. And so for instance, in March, we know that families that were already struggling pre-pandemic, those folks are having a harder time recovering. For instance, our um, Latina communities are really struggling just with the basics, food and housing. And um, and so we're seeing a kind of a disparate reality when it comes to recovery is that a lot of the work that's going into like the CARES Fund and the American Rescue um, Plan, all of those things are working and people are recovering. But when you disaggregate by race and ethnicity, then you see that there's a disparate recovery taking place. And so as an organization, with that targeted approach, we want to know why are those families still struggling and how do we deliver targeted resources to ensure that those children who were already behind before the pandemic are not systemically left behind for longer. That's what the data is pointing to, is that it's not an equal recovery. And so that the more that we can do to lean in and target resources, the better off children will be. And what would you say are some examples of really targeting assistance or investments for those kids and families who we know are struggling and not recovering from what's happened with COVID in the past year? I can jump in first. And yeah. Yeah, please. So I think one of the things that Oregon did, as Jennifer mentioned, with the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan, there have been resources flowing into Oregon to go out to families. But many of those resources are not available to undocumented or mixed status families. So Oregon set up the Oregon Worker Relief Fund to use state resources, general fund dollars, to put dollars out into those communities to help them with assistance. The American Rescue Plan does open up a little bit more to use some of the ARPA funding, the American Rescue Plan funding for mixed status families if the children have social security numbers. So that's helpful. But Oregon has tried to to do some other programs to help in those cases. So that's one example. And then we have the Landlord Compensation Fund that's been set up to channel rental assistance dollars that are coming in from the federal government to help, you know, as the eviction moratorium ends. As Jennifer said, there are real disparities around people being concerned about whether they can pay their next month's rent. And so as of July 1st, rent needs to be paid. So that is a real challenge right now. So making sure that those dollars get to the landlord so that evictions don't happen next month is really a targeted program right now. When you look at the data, is there an area that when you look at you say, I wish I had some more information here, I'd love to be able to dig into this further. 
Does it raise some questions for you or, or does it give you everything that you need? What does that look like? Is there something that you're really wishing the, the data book would give you? You know, that's a continuing question because every piece <laughs> of data opens up another door to ask a why or a how. And I think one of the things as an organization that we look at is that data can be used to harm and has been used to harm. And so when we look at our data points, we are in a process of critique and and ensuring that our data is not causing unintentional harm and that we're carefully examining, you know, what's led to success. We talk about what hasn't worked a lot. I guess humans negativity bias, right? You could probably do a whole podcast on that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But really a lot of the public policies that we've put in place are working. And so we also are trying to elevate like what's working for Oregon's kids. And so if you look at the 10 year trend in our data, child poverty has declined by 41% from 2010 to 2019. So we're down to 13% of children who are experiencing poverty. And even in just that phrase, how do we talk about poverty without undermining the communities that we love and that are our people, right? Because we're all interconnected. And so when we talk about a family experiencing poverty, it's a way of trying to not other them because we know that poverty is a systematic thing that impacts us all. And so right now, child poverty in Oregon is at 13%. And the vision and the possibility with the child tax credit, the proposal that's out right now and the opportunity for families to tap into that, and that's still an invitation that's open right now that families even families who have historically not had to file their taxes can apply for, we'll cut that in half if we make sure that all families take advantage of this new tax credit. That's just a game changer because people having the basic needs met allows them to start thinking about the other things in their future. And so when we look at data, we're thinking about that. We're thinking about what part of the story are we not telling? Where is an intersectional piece of the pie that we haven't brought in to really be able to focus on and say, this is important. It needs to be elevated. Um, So it's a continual conversation in our team and with our board and with our partners about how best and what best data to use and, and to talk about. You mentioned this, you know, you've connected what you've learned in data to changing policy. And you mentioned the child tax credit. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is and how it works? Yeah, and it's such a game changer and such a beautiful potential that we have as a nation right now. So this is a one-year expansion of the child tax credit that 90% of children across the country will qualify for this child tax credit. And it's being paid ahead of when taxes are to be filed next year. So families can log in to childtaxcredit.gov and they can click to be able to get it's $300 for children that are six and under per month and $250 for children that are seven to 17 years old per month that families can now get. And this one year infusion, advocates like Chris and I are fighting and people across the nation are fighting so that this could be permanent because this is a an investment in not just the future, but in the present now of the well-being of our children and a game changer for families throughout the nation. Chris, I'm going to ask you what you think it will take to make it permanent. Well, I am hopeful that Congress has the political will to do this, that now is the time. I think that with the pandemic, 
it's become more and more apparent the disparities within our nation and that things were not working for too many people before the pandemic. There was a lot of talk about when are we going back to normal and we can't go back to normal because it wasn't working for too many of us. Therefore, I'm really hopeful that, as Jennifer said, advocates across the country are working on this. We've met with our congressional delegation and they're helping to fight for this. There are other parts of the country where advocates are working really hard with their elected representatives to move them and make sure that this can get through both the House and the Senate. So it's not a cheap investment, but it's a critical investment for our country to be able to move forward so that all children can thrive and that we can really move forward out of the pandemic in a stronger position for across the country. We'll definitely be tracking what happens with that tax credit in particular. Given what you're seeing in the data, are there other policy implications at this point? What would you point to? Well, I would just say that there's a lot of gratitude for this moment because we are leaning in and some of the things that advocates have worked on for for maybe even decades are coming true. And so part of the message is thank you to our elected officials. There's gratitude in that we are moving the needle and thank you to the voters throughout the state for supporting and leaning in because it really does take us all to get the right policies in place where children can thrive. But obviously, there's more work for us to do. And Chris has been, we say in the Zoom halls of Salem, all session, fighting for our children's agenda and working through the priorities that we have on both the agenda and then staying connected to the national conversation too. So I'll ask her to highlight some of those. Well, I think housing continues to be an issue. And so while we have been doing better as far as households with a high housing cost burden, we still have about a third of children who are living in families where they are paying more than 30% of their income on housing. When I first started working, which was many years ago, I mean, that was considered completely unsustainable. And now it's really the norm almost to have these high numbers. And so There have been a lot of efforts to invest in affordable housing and housing stock, but we still have way too many houseless students, students who are couch surfing because their families really can't maintain a stable house. And as Jennifer said, that has a lot of implications besides having a safe, warm bed to sleep in at night. It also means moving schools and a lot of other instability. And so we are hopeful that in this legislative session with the American Rescue Plan dollars coming in and other resources, that there'll be a lot of big investment, a continued investment in affordable housing. But that's an area that we're going to have to continue to work on to get to a place where every family has a stable home. If we think about the past 30 years, 32 years of data collection, let's look ahead to the next 30. What do you hope to see over time? What kind of changes do you hope to see? Chris, I'll start with you, and then Jennifer, I'll give you a chance to answer that question also. That, you know, thinking about the possibilities, it's really reimagining what our communities and our world can look like, where every family has the ability to you know, with self-determination, find a a safe place to be living, purpose, 
quality education, a lot of the things that Jennifer mentioned kind of at the beginning of the podcast about what do children need. I mean, the data points give us points in time about what we can track to measure, but there is a lot more underneath that about just the less tangible pieces also that that we want to see. And more importantly than anything, that as we look now and we, when we look at disaggregated data by race and ethnicity, we see these huge gaps and disparities. And so we want to see those closed as we move forward. Jennifer? Yeah, you know, I couldn't, I, I revisited one of the pieces that came out early in the pandemic. The pandemic is a portal. And so many of your listeners will remember this one from Arundhati Roy. And I reread that both for perspective, for preparing for these conversations, and also just to, to have it in my heart again about the collective experience we've all had over this year and a half of living through a global pandemic that's really changed so much. And Chris mentioned, we don't want to return to normal because normal wasn't working for too many people. And so the question is, is what is the vision for what's possible? Where do we go and who are those that can help us get there? I was thinking about, you know, right now we measure lots of our success as a nation on gross domestic product, right? The GDP. And, and there's a lot of concern around the economics of the um, pandemic. And I was like, but what if we really focused on well-being? What if we measured our country based on global domestic well-being? The UNICEF actually does that. And we, we don't measure up very well as a state, as a country. You know, I think we're 36 out of 38 wealthy nations when it comes to overall child well-being. And so I feel like this portal, this, you know, the pandemic as a portal is an opportunity for us to take resources that are being given from our tax dollars from the federal government and, and lean in and, and think, how do we want to, to craft society? How do we want our education system to look? What should an early care system look like that nurtures children and supports families and doesn't disproportionately impact women with low wages? How are we reimagining and demanding that something change? The hope for the future is that we see and that there are so many people doing good work and leaning in. We have so many of the solutions at hand. And so we think that more opportunities like this to share policy solutions and to inform listeners that there are ways to make a difference. Policy matters. We are decreasing poverty, right? This is the good news section. Like we've got more to do, <laughs> but we have to imagine it together. So there's this concept of translocal organizing. And so I have this imagination of like pulling together all the good that's happening across the state and elevating that and really talking about how many people are really fighting for healthy communities. And so I would just say that, you know, as we continue as an organization to try to unite and to bring people together, that the table is wide open, that we want people's ideas coming to the table. We want the best policy thoughts and thinkers and, and that we can get there. We have to believe we can get there. We can solve some of these entrenched problems, but it takes belief. It takes action. And honestly, it does take some of us saying no to some of our privileges. And so that's another kind of part of the conversation is what are the things that are harming our ability to achieve this vision? And how do we work on those hearts and minds to, to say, we might have to give up the second mortgage interest deduction for second homes here in Oregon in order for all children to have a home. And what does that mean, right? Like, how do we examine right. our heart right. in making that choice? So there's hard conversations to be had. But the benefit of all children thriving and us having really beautiful communities is within reach. We just have to make it 
happen together. Jennifer and Chris, it's been so good to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And if you are interested in going a little bit deeper in the Kids Count data book and all of the data that is in there, take a look at national trends and what's happening in Oregon. You can find more information on the Our Children Oregon website. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit Sign up for our newsletter or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.